We, this morning, are doing um, 2 Thessalonians. And I want you guys to see my shirt here because we're doing the Route 66 series, right? Boom shakalaka right here, 66 to represent. So that's right, right? Um, actually, it didn't need to be ironed and it matched. So I was like, that works. And I was like, oh, it has 66 on it. That's a God thing. So that's kind of neat. We are going to look at 2 Thessalonians um, this morning. And Pastor Josh, and I'm going to try and follow in my husband's footsteps, but he's left some pretty big footsteps with this series. So if I don't quite measure up, cut me some grace. Because um, he's done an amazing job teaching. Amen? Yeah, that's right. I'm digging up praise for my husband because I think he's done an amazing job and I'm proud of him. All right, so 2 Thessalonians is kind of an odd little... <laughs> I want to call it um, an ecclesiastical sandwich (laughs) because um, Paul typically in his writings is very pragmatic. We look at um, Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, for example, and it's all about um, how to do church together, right? Because that's his audience that he's speaking to. These people that are coming out of, they're typically Gentiles. Some of them are Jews, you know, Jewish, um, Jewish people that have come to know Jesus, but often they are Gentiles, and they have come out of a crazy, crazy background, right? Where anything goes when you worship, and, um, you know, it's, and Paul's trying to teach them in his epistles how to do church together and what it looks like. You know, don't punch each other when you're at the feasting table together. Don't get drunk off of the communion wine. Just stuff like that, right? That's, he's going over basic stuff, typically. Um, and, and then there's, there's theology, um, that he sprinkles in there too. Like, this is what you need to believe as Christ followers, right? Second Thessalonians is a little different because, and I said it's a, an ecclesiastical sandwich because, and we'll get into the text, but it starts out with greetings. He's like, hi, how are you guys? You guys are doing a great job. The Thessalonian church had been undergoing incredible persecution. Like, people were Christians, these new Christians, and they're primarily Gentiles. There's some Jewish believers, but they're primarily Gentiles, and they're getting attacked in the marketplace. They just go to get their dates, right? And somebody just comes up and is like, you're a Christian. And they would drag them out in the middle of the, the city square and just beat the crud out of them. <clears throat> so Paul begins Second Thessalonians by saying, good job, you guys. And I commend you for sticking it, sticking it out and not abandoning Jesus and saying, yes, I love Jesus, right? When, when the going got tough, they stuck it out. Oh, boom, I got this thing. So, but I might need that second service, so... <laughs> Okay, so, so then that's all chapter one, right? And then you get to chapter two, and it's all about end times. And so as I was studying about this, and then, and then chapter three, Paul is talking, he, he gets, he kind of goes into the Pauline thing where he's like, okay, you guys, this kind of behavior is going on, and you need to change it up, right? But in between chapter two, you've got this, you know, from verses 12 out of the 17 verses here in chapter two are concerning the end days, And as I was studying this, I was like, what the heck is going on? What is this about? This seems kind of wacky. And we'll get to why this makes sense. But I was studying it, and I was like, this is kind of bizarro. Like, this isn't typically how Paul does stuff in the epistles. It's very instructional, very like, rah, 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 you guys got this. But this is different. And uh, we'll get into in a second why it is different, because there's a reason for it. But this is some odd stuff, and honestly... The topic of persecution and end days, just me being very honest with you guys, are probably the, <laughs> the two of my least favorite things to preach on. So I was like, dang it, 
But Josh is like, you, you picked it already. So, so, but the message in 2 Thessalonians is amazing. And I want us to gain hope from it and inspiration because it's, it's good stuff. All right. So let's, let me give you some, because it's a survey kind of, so it wouldn't be a survey if I didn't give you some overview stuff, some information. Um, 2 Thessalonians, um, scholars believe, is the second book that Paul wrote, right? Um, <coughs> sorry. And it looks like he wrote it about one, six months to one year after 1 Thessalonians, okay? So Paul and 1 Thessalonians tackle some of these key issues. One of the key issues um, that he talked about was people that were just kind of, they thought Jesus was going to come back super soon. So these people quit living, basically. They stopped working. They stopped earning a living. They're like, we're just going to wait around for Jesus. They stopped getting married. They just stopped living. They're like, we're just, we're going to wait till Jesus comes back because he's come back soon. So in 2 Thessalonians, that was in 1 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, um, Paul follows up on that. Okay. Um, bless you. Um, 2 Thessalonians is predominantly a, a new Gentile church. So it's kind of interesting because they, in, in the city that Thessalonica that they're in, it was a port city, right? So there was all kinds of crazy stuff that was there, all kinds of um, mystery religions, sex cults, just the whole nine yards. It was a melting pot of people and cultures and religion. And in fact, these Christians here in the church of Thessalonica were called atheists often by the Romans. Because in the Roman and Greek pantheon, you didn't just believe in one God. You believed in 50 of them. And so they looked at the Christians, and the Christians were just peculiar because they're like, they just believed in the one God, Yahweh. All right. Now, Thessalonica was originally called Therma or Therm. And then what happened was um, a Macedonian king called Cassander, he was the son of Antipater, um, married this woman, Thessalonica, who was the stepsister of Philip, or of, uh, sorry, Alexander the Great, okay? So he is like, I love my wife. Guess what, honey? I'm naming a town after you. How would you like that to get a, a, ta a, na a town named after you? That'd be nice, huh? Um, Okay, so this town, interestingly enough, is still around today. You have the picture of that town? It's this huge, you can't really see it too easily, but it's this huge town in Greece. It's the second largest city in Greece, and I just think it's fascinating that this town is still around today. Can you show another, another picture? Yeah, isn't that cool? It's just it's a great mix. Imagine this. Paul probably pulled into one of these ports along here. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this town is super old, but it's still thriving. And I just love the contrast here. We've got this old building. And then, um, okay, and also, and this here is awesome. This is called the Hagia Sophia, which is one of the oldest churches in Greece. And it's a, a, an architectural marvel because um, of the dome. The dome is huge, and it, they don't know how they did it, and all the minarets and stuff. So anyways... So Thessalonica is still a, um, an impressive town, it is, and it's still around today. So I just think it's neat to be able to connect it and say, oh, the stuff in the Bible, it's really real. <laughs> we have architectural uh, or archaeological proof. And this is just to share where it's located for, for those of you guys that are um, geography challenged like I am. All right. So I, go, I hope you guys took notes because there will be a test later. <laughs> 
just kidding. But I just think it helps to know what we're studying and, and, and its significance and that this town still exists today. That's pretty impressive, I think, you know? All right. So let's get a lay of the land of uh, Thessalonians, all right? Now, first of all, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do an overview and kind of do a, a, a brief, broad-stroke outline of 2 Thessalonians. All right, so the bigger picture of what's going on is the Thessalonians are freaking out because they are undergoing such incredible persecution. I mean, they are getting dragged from their homes, and they're getting the snot beaten out of them, you know, in the marketplace in front of broad daylight, in front of everybody, right? And um, the cool thing, though, is that this doesn't make them grow cold towards Jesus and their faith. Their numbers actually increase, and their fervor increases. And in fact, we'll get into it, the Greek word that Paul uses for flourishing, you know, in verse uh, 3, that's not used in any other um, of his epistles. It's just specifically for Second Thessalonians. They are growing at such a rapid rate. Okay, so the crazy thing is, right, on one hand, they're expanding and they're pulling in new members, even under this incredible persecution, but they're also freaking out because they're like, this persecution is so gnarly and so intense. We feel like, is this the tribulation? Did we miss the rapture? Did we miss Jesus coming back for us? Because this life right now is really tough and it hurts. We still love Jesus, but we're getting the snot beaten out of us. So Paul, and on top of it, they believe this too, because there had been false teachers who claimed to be speaking on Paul's behalf. And they're like, yeah, Paul, <laughs> Paul wants you guys to know you guys missed the boat. Jesus came and didn't beam you guys up. Can you imagine what that would do? So these, and these are new believers, mind you. I mean, the, the story of Thessalonians is just fascinating because... They're, they're not seasoned believers. They are a new church. And they are undergoing such intense persecution. Okay, so, so Paul comes in, right? And let's look, let's look at some, uh, can we bring 1 Thessalonians 3 through 4 up? We're, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to have us read some chunks, some key chunks, out of this three-chapter book, um, just to kind of give us a sense of what's going on. All right, let's read... Um, First Thessalonians, we're going to just jump into verses 3 and 4. Uh, we, this is Paul speaking. We must always thank God for you, brothers, which is fitting, since your faith is flourishing. And like I said, in the Greek, that idea is he doesn't use this idea anywhere else. It's not just like a, you're doing a good job and you're, you're maintaining. The idea in the Greek here is that you are just like, you are reproducing after your kind, and people are flocking to your church, and there are genuine conversions. And we, you know when you see popcorn pop at the movie theater, right, and the big giant thing, and the popcorn's just popping, 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 and the lid can't stay down, right? That is what is going on in, with the Thessalonians here. There are conversions left and right, even in the midst of this tough, tough time and this persecution, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so Paul's like, good job, you guys. You are just you know, reproducing spiritually, good job. Okay, and then the other part of it is, and, in verse 3, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So what's cool is, and this is a Pauline theme, there's a triad, usually that Paul has in his epistles, faith, love, and hope. You see this theme over and over and over again. So here, we see the faith part, right? Because they believe enough to, to persevere, and then the, their love. They have this incredible love for each other. I don't know about you guys, but when I get stressed, 
I actually got in trouble this uh, when I was working as an editor. And the deadlines were really intense, right? And you'd, you'd, sometimes you'd work 16-hour jobs and take stuff home and read 300 pages that you have to proofread, and then you have to send it back to the printer. And then if I once made a $40,000 printing mistake, no joke, and I just, I was the crankiest person on the face of the earth. My husband wanted to divorce me because he was like, you are so cranky right now. I don't want to be around you. And all my coworkers and my boss actually had to pull me aside. She's like, you need to pull it together because you are so mean and cranky right now to everybody. Okay, so that was me under duress, right? M multiply that by, that that's nothing. These Thessalonians are facing certain death and torture. And yet, instead of pulling inward and being like, we got to look after ourselves and protect ourselves, they are just showing love to one another. Think about it. When you are stressed, right, and you have bills that you have to pay, or you can't figure out how you're going to get gas in your gas tank, right? And when Josh and I were first married, we kind of we kind of were there. <laughs> we're like, Ugh. and you know, it's easy to just get you're on edge, you're you're tense, right? Well, that's what these Thessalonians were going through, and yet they show this great love to one another. And it's attracting the Gentiles and the Jews. So it's pretty impressive. All right, so, okay, so that's uh, chapter th or verses 3 to 4. Now, let's skip ahead, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 9 in chapter 1. It is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering, since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will repay the penalty of everlasting destruction away from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. All right, we're going to stop it there. Now, what's interesting, too, about this little section is this so Paul is trying to encourage them. He's like, I know you're going through the thick of it, and you guys are doing a great job. Don't worry. God is going to get even for you. This is one of the few places where, <laughs> where uh, God is talking about getting even. Most of the time in the New Testament, God's like, you know, turn your other cheek. Show your love. Even, even if they throw stuff at you, you, you just say, I bless you in the name of Jesus. And here, what's interesting is Paul's like, Oh, God is going to get the people that are persecuting you. Don't worry about it. So that's kind of an interesting thing. All right, let's skip on ahead. So once again, if you're like, we're just, we're skimming stuff, I know. I'm trying to give you guys a lay of the land. We'll go back. We'll circle back around like buzzards, and we'll to kind of drill in and figure out where, and grab the meat of, of these, these things that we're going through. All right, and then, so we skip ahead to chapter 2. I don't know about you guys, but it's kind of like a whoo, like kind of like a 180, right? Because Paul goes from comforting them. And saying, good job in chapter 1. Hang on, Jesus is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, be a, an advocate on your behalf, and he's going to get those who got you. And then we have chapter 2. Let's, we're going to read verse uh, 1 through 11. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Now, concerning the, com the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter, as if from us, alleging the day of the Lord has come. That's what they thought they had missed. 
I thought they had missed the boat and Jesus had not beamed them up, okay? Don't let, verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this? So he was just with them about six months ago. And he's like, he's like don't you remember what I told you about this? Verse 6, and you know what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. And then the lawless, okay, one one will be revealed, sorry. Uh, Verse 8, the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the law of the lawless one is based on Satan's working, with all kinds of false miracles, signs, wonders, and with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false so that they will all be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but enjoyed unrighteousness. All right, let's just stop there. That's kind of, bless you, that's a lot of ecclesiastical, like eschatological stuff, right, at the end. He goes from, so I don't know, does anybody else feel like this is kind of weird, like he's encouraging them, and then all of a sudden he's like, we're going to talk about the end days and what it's going to look like. No, nobody, it was just me, Mako, party one. Okay, so all this stuff about, this is very specific, and Paul is very detail-oriented in his description here, okay? Um, let's go through some of this stuff and figure out why is Paul being so detail-oriented. And he starts it off in verse, uh, verse 1 in chapter 2. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So basically, this was an issue for them because he's saying there is a problem here. I'm going to address it for you guys, Okay? Now, people, obviously, in verse 2, they're telling, remember, the Thessalonians, hey, this is what's going on. You missed the boat. Paul wants you to know you missed the boat, so you're going to have to live through the tribulation. How would you like to have that as a new believer? I remember when I was 10, um, we'd grown up in a certain church, and they were very big on the tribulation. And as a 10-year-old, when I would go out with my mom, if I couldn't find her visually in two seconds, I'd freak out because I was like, I missed the rapture. I got left behind. So, so I resonate with the Thessalonians because I, I seriously, it took me about two years to shake it from, I was about 10 to 12. If I didn't see my mom, I was like, I missed the rapture. I missed the rapture. I didn't get raptured. Dang it, I'm going to live through the tribulation. I was like, oh, that's awful. So the Thessalonians are kind of feeling the same way, right? And so Paul goes through and he delineates and breaks everything down. And he talks about all the stuff that's going to happen, right? So he explains to them, he's like, you will be raptured first. You did not miss the boat, okay? You will be raptured up into heaven. Um, Jesus is going to beam you up. And then there's going to be the man of lawlessness that comes, right? And so he's going to come, and, there's, and then that lawlessness is going to ensue around the world. And it's kind of interesting. This is part of why I don't like eschatology. It's probably just because I'm a very pragmatic person, in a sense. 
In eschatology, I figure the end days, it's going to happen, right? So I want to study more like what, how we should be living now. But this is, and this is, gets to the key of why Paul goes in depth here. He is trying to paint a picture for them. He is trying to give them hope when he explains all this. He's like, this is what, it, he doesn't, now notice he doesn't give them a timeline, but he gives them events, and he says, this is going to happen. You'll get raptured. The church will get raptured. Then a man of lawlessness will come and start, and he'll just seem like amazing. You know, this guy's going to be performing miracles and making all kinds of deals and making deals with Israel. And then lawlessness will kind of settle in. And a lot of the commentators that I was reading believe that this isn't just lawlessness against God's word, but it's just a general unrest with government, with law enforcement. So it's kind of interesting. It feels to me like, I don't know, we're living in these times right now. But, okay, so he is breaking it down. And then he says, okay, so then Jesus, right, in verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Okay, when he talks about the restrainer is pulled out. Let's see. Anybody finds it? Seven? Seven? Thank you. Yes. Okay, so uh, that's interesting, right? Now the one doing the restraining. Initially we think it is the Holy Spirit, right, which is partially true. But it's the Holy Spirit doing the work through the saints, that is what is restraining the full work of Satan having victory on this earth. Think about it. Every time you talk to somebody as a Christ follower who has no hope or they're ready to throw the towel in, right? Or they're, they're walking through a, a difficult time physically or they have a loved one maybe that's dying. Maybe you've lost your job or you have a really sick kid or your marriage is falling apart or you're getting evicted from your house, whatever, right? When you as a believer speak to this person, maybe and they're, maybe they're not believers, and you're like, you know what? There's hope. You have hope. Let's pray together. That restrains the hand of Satan because you are giving hope. You are injecting hope into a hopeless situation, okay? So we, isn't that crazy, you guys? The church, we are part of the restraining against the works of Satan, yeah, that's pretty impressive. When you look at it in that light, it makes you want to just get up and say, yeah, I belong to Jesus. I love Jesus. Not just like, oh, it's time to go to church again. Or let's pray. Let's do devotionals. It's like, I belong to Jesus. That should stir something in us. Okay, so that's pretty cool. I digress. Um, all right, so... Jesus says, I will remove the restrainer, which is us. It's a partnership between the Holy Spirit and us, right? And then at this time, Satan, Satan's minion, the guy of lawlessness, because the man of lawlessness is not Satan himself. He's kind of like Satan's henchman. We'll have, you know, get to have his way for a time. And then Jesus, this is cool, check it out, in verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, okay? The Lord Jesus, and then... Jesus comes in, and he's like, enough. Time's up. Okay? Verse 8, the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. 
How cool is this? Now, what's fascinating is other times in the Bible where we've talked about, where we've seen the breath of God, it is life-giving. Remember with Adam? How did God create Adam? Remember, he formed the dirt and he breathed life into it. The ruach of God, the breath of God, okay? So what's fascinating is that the breath of God is not used to breathe life into something. It is used to extract life, to end life here. So that's, I think that's fascinating. I know if you're a nerd like me, you're just like, oh, that's cool. Um, all right, and then the glory of God's light just, like, destroys. Uh, how many of you guys saw Lord of the Rings? Oh, yeah. yeah, okay, right, all right. Nerd on, right? Woo. Okay, so the, the light of, uh, what is it, the light? that is given to Samwise Ganji, and it's a, the vial, right? Remember? And it's used to hold back Shelob, the giant demon, spider demon, right? And Sam holds it up, and he, it, like the light blows the she-demon back, the spider, right? That's what is going on here. That's pretty cool, huh? The light of Jesus dissipates and destroys any darkness. That's pretty cool. God, notice here, God doesn't have to exert any physical contact. He just is. His isness destroys the darkness. Have you noticed that? His breath, okay, and his light, just him being, destroys the darkness. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's pretty powerful. That when you're on a, when you're having a low day and you're like, Ugh, remember this, God just exists and he makes things happen. He is that powerful. All right. I set a timer so I wouldn't go over. So I'm trying to stay on track, y'all. Um, all right. So then um, we get to the end of, so Jesus has victory and he destroys the man of lawlessness, right? Okay. So Paul, notice, is very detailed in chapter 2. Okay. Then we skip forward and let's read uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, either by your message or by our letter. So again, Paul here is trying to bring it back around. He's trying to encourage them, right? So he gives them this bit of theology and end times. It's very detailed. And then he brings it back around at the end. He's like, you guys are doing a great job. Continue marching forward. All right? So then let's skip ahead to chapter 3. We're going to read verses 6 through 8. Now, now this is, so this is typical Pauline fashion, where he's like, let's look at the nitty-gritty. Let's look at behaviors of what's going on, right? Okay. So obviously, there's some people here that are kind of not earning their keep, and they're being slothful, and Paul is calling them on it in the church of Thess Thessalonica. All right, let's read it. Uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... To keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition, that's that word tradition again, and that's important, you should circle it, received from us. That's Paul. That's the royal we. For you yourselves know how you must imitate us. We were not irresponsible among you. We did not eat anyone's bread free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden on any, to any of you. All right, then let's skip ahead and read verses 10 through 11. In fact, so Paul's kind of really driving his point home here. 
when we were with you. So what's important too is Paul saying, not only did I, am I telling you this and did I write this to you, I modeled it to you when I was in your midst six months ago, okay? Which is important. You want to have teachers and leaders that are not just giving lip service to stuff. They are walking it out. They are modeling it in their lives. All right, verse 10. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. So it's kind of like this idea that you have these people in the church that were kind of just being slackers, right? And here's what I think was going on. They were slacking off because they're like, well, Jesus is going to come back soon, or we miss, we miss Jesus beaming us up. So what's the point? What's the point of us doing basic stuff like earning, a, earning our living and working and getting money to eat? Why should we do that? We miss Jesus. Okay, so maybe you're like, Mako, you are all over the place, right? I know. Bear with me, though. Oh, see, I set my timer. Okay, I'm going to go for five more minutes, and then we'll stop. I, I pinky promise. <laughs> All right, so let me, let me tie this. If I could say what is, if we could tie this together and extract a common thread that goes through this. Do, do you understand, though, when I'm saying it's like an eschatological, an, an end days sandwich? You've got encouragement in the beginning chapter. You've got end days stuff in chapter 2. And then at the end, Paul's like, come on, you guys, rah, rah, rah. Let's get it together. So you, it's like this kind of weird sandwich, right? Okay, so tying it together. The common theme here is, I think, hope. Okay? They are under incredible duress. They are new Christians. And while they are flourishing and doing an exceptional job, and they have become a model to other churches, you know, if we turn back to chapter, the beginning of chapter 1, um, Paul says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you among God's churches. How would you like to be the church that Paul brags about? That's pretty awesome, I think. That's amazing. Okay. But they're kind of experiencing a little bit of panic, right? Because they've kind of lost their, their, their vantage point, in a sense. And that's why we have these... I think these believers here in chapter 3 that have stopped working, and they're just mooching off of everybody. They've lost hope. They're like, what's the point of doing basic stuff like working and eating and earning our keep if we've missed Jesus coming back? There's a loss of hope. And what does Paul do? He provides them with a fixed point in chapter 2 by delineating the end days. And he's like, this is your horizon. It's okay. Keep your eyes lifted and look at the horizon. This is what you, you should be hanging your hope on. And I think as, as Christ followers in our day and age, I, I was at a Bible study with some 20-somethings a couple, couple of nights ago. And some of them have grown up in traditions where there is no distinction between religion and culture. 
if you are a Christian, you were raised in a particular um, uh, culture, you know, that, that there's no distinction between the two. It's just, it's like your religion is kind of part of the package deal. And we were talking through some of this stuff, and this, this one lady was like, this young woman was like, I don't know why I believe what I believe. And so as we were going through more of the Bible study and talking through more stuff, she's like, I think you guys have a different conception of God than I do. For me, he's just kind of always in the background. And I know that he loves me, and I know he's there, but I don't, I think that's what I'm missing. I'm missing the relationship. And you guys have a hope that I don't have. And I thought, man, that, that kind of summarizes what's going on here. We must have hope. God created us to be driven by hope. We can have hope in other things, but ultimately it's hope in Jesus. And so here's what I want to ask you guys. We, you know, we come to church and we're creatures of habit. I'm a big creature of habit. You know that book? There's a book out there called Who Moved My Cheese? It's about people that like to have things just so. I'm, that's me. It was written for me because I am just so like at home. I'm just like everything's got to just just right here. Don't touch it. Don't touch my stuff. Okay? And God, I think, okay, one more thing too. What I, what I want us to get, sorry, I know I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, let's read ahead in verse 3. This is the other thing too. So the Thessalonians, some of them, the ones that were freezing to work, and some of them, they were freaking out because they were starting to lose a little bit of hope, right? Because they're like, well, Paul said this. This is from Paul. This is important. Um, 3.17, verse 17. This greeting, Paul writes, is in my own hand. Paul, this is a sign in every letter. This is how I write. Maybe you read that initially and then you're kind of like, that's kind of weird. Good for you, Paul. Okay, good job. But what Paul is saying, and this is a good lesson, we need to test what we hear. They were, they were hearing false information, and they weren't quite testing it. And Paul is like, I am giving you a measuring rod for testing it. Is it in my writing? And I think when we hear things, we can extrapolate that, and we can say when we hear things in our life, right, we need to say, is this in Jesus' writing? And I'm not saying that we look at, you know, a diagnosis of cancer or a job loss, or an eviction, or whatever, or the dissolution of a marriage. And I'm not saying that we look at that and go, that's not happening, that's not happening. That's not what I'm saying, because we live in a real world. And we even know that Jesus wept. Jesus experienced pain and loss. But that we look at it, and when Satan tries to say, I'm going to suck out your hope. I'm going to dispel darkness to absorb the light. We say, no, no, just hold up a sec. What does Jesus say? What, what words does Jesus have for us? And that, like, like we read about in chapter 2, Jesus' breath and his light will dispel the darkness. And it will reposition the spot on the horizon that we're supposed to fix our eyes to. And when we feel like we're dipping our head and we just can't keep it up, we remember there's a fixed point on the horizon, and we need to keep our head up. Okay, in closing, I want to show you guys this video real quick. This is from, before you roll it, 
Crystal, let me just, it's by this, it's from a TED Talk, um, and it's by this woman named Diana Nyad. At 60 years old, she swam from Florida to Cuba. Pretty dang crazy. At 60. She had a team of 30 people with her, and she had attempted it four other times before. It took her 55 hours. I mean, she, she almost died. <laughs> I mean, literally. But she talks this little clip. Now, she's not a believer, and some of you might be like, but she doesn't, she's not acknowledging Jesus. No, because she's not a believer. But I think that there's truth, what she's saying, that we can take from this and apply it to our lives. Remember I was saying about the fixed point on the horizon and having hope? Listen to what she says. Can you imagine swimming for that amount of time? 40 hours, and you still have 15 hours left. What, what we didn't get in this little bit was that she was also, <laughs> she was experiencing hyperthermia. Her organs were starting to slow way down. She was vomiting profusely. She was experiencing severe dehydration. She was hallucinating because she thought she saw the Taj Mahal. <laughs> what compels a person to say, with all that physical stuff, oh, and on top of it, she had a mask on, a special jelly-proof, jellyfish-proof mask, and it was, gave her horrible blisters, and her face was chafing, it was bleeding in some places, and it was incredibly swollen. But if she didn't wear it, she'd get stung by a jellyfish because in her previous attempt she had. What compels a person, you're, when your body is literally on the verge of giving out and you have vomited profusely, you have no fluid left in your body, you're on the verge of hypothermia, you're hallucinating because your body's just like done. What compels you to say, yes, I'm going to do 15 more hours? You see the horizon. That's right, Sylvia. She saw the horizon. And I want to, can I have the band to come up, please? I want to encourage you guys, whatever you're going through, fix your eyes on the horizon. Not your horizon, not what you've created, but the one that Jesus has laid out for you. We all know that life is tough. That's unfortunately a given, right? Unfortunately, it would be wonderful if once we became Christians, Jesus was like, boom, shakalaka. You have a blessed life. No problems, no hardships, no worries, no physical ailments, no financial problems, no relationship issues. But Jesus says, I will be with you in the midst. And guess what? When we suffer, when we are persecuted for our faith, and honestly, I just think, too, in our day and culture, I was thinking about this, um, persecution might look different than it did back in Paul's day or than it, did, than it did, does in a different part of the world. I think for us in our culture, persecution is social ostracization or, or when we don't have material wealth enough, Right? That's, that's what's difficult. And when I was meeting with these, these, these kids, at, these college kids on their campus, they are marked. People are like, you guys, come on, really? You're too smart to believe in God. Why are you doing this? 
They are ostracized. They're teased. But the, you know what they do? They keep meeting. They keep, they keep encouraging one another. And I think that when God allows us to suffer like that, let me tell you this too. I don't think God's sadistic, and I don't think he's like, ha ha, I'm going to put this person through this. <laughs> it is an invitation. Suffering is an invitation to intimacy. Yeah. Because Jesus suffered. And when Jesus allows us to suffer with him, it is an invitation. And he's saying, I trust you. I know that you have the character to walk through suffering and you're not going to walk away from me. And it's like he's saying, come, let's go take a walk. And I'm going to fix a point on the horizon for you. And I just want you guys to be encouraged. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't get sidetracked by anything else. And Jesus will make sure that you reach the other side.